Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. Our guest on the show today is Craig Packer, the CEO of Our Rock Capital Corp a $5.4 billion market cap business development company that invests in middle market companies in the U.S. Craig is also the chief investment officer of Our Rock Capital, a New York-based direct lending platform with over $100 billion of assets under management. This is the first business development company, or BDC for short, we have had on the podcast. So we wanted to make sure that we spent some time talking about BDCs in general and why Craig thinks they are an attractive niche within the public markets. Additionally, In the discussion with Craig, we covered what metrics investors should focus on when they are considering investing in a BDC, Our Rock Capital's investment philosophy and risk management strategies, how Craig would expect the BDC's portfolio to perform in an economic downturn, what kind of investment opportunities Craig and his team are seeing at the moment, and the proper use of leverage within a BDC structure. For full disclosure, Cove Street is not an Our Rock Capital Corp shareholder. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Al Rock's Craig Packer. As always, we will start this podcast off at a pivotal moment in the company's history. Craig, I know you were a co-founder of Al Rock, so why don't you take us back to the founding of the company and why the opportunity set was so compelling? Uh, sure, Ben. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Um, so, from my perspective, um, this all began. In 2015, I was a partner at Goldman Sachs running the leverage finance business, and I was approached by uh, a former colleague and good friend of mine, Doug Ostrover, and Doug had founded a credit business called GSO, and he had sold that business to Blackstone, and he, he was still at Blackstone, but he had, he recently left, and he approached me with um, his vision for building a direct lending business. Now, just... We'll get into this, I'm sure. When I say direct lending, we make loans directly to companies, and we'll dive into that. But it's important for you to understand the conception behind starting the firm. We thought that direct lending was going to really grow as an asset class, and we saw two trends that were converging at the same time. One was the banks were pulling back from financing uh, private equity firms and leverage finance deals. And direct lenders were filling that void, and the private equity firms wanted to do more of it, and there weren't there wasn't enough capacity to go around. At the same time, again, this is 
middle of 2015, end of 2015, interest rates were very, very low. Institutions, individuals, everybody wanted yield. And direct lending funds offer a really attractive yield opportunity. So there was demand for the capital from the borrowers. There's demand for uh, the funds from investors. And we positioned our new firm, didn't even have a name at that point, uh, to be at the intersection of those two trends. Now, we very much, in starting with a blank sheet of paper, there were others in the space. We weren't the first. Um, Historically, direct lending was a market where companies would go that couldn't get financing elsewhere. We We saw it differently. We thought of direct lending as offering solutions for companies that could access the public markets, but preferred a private solution from a direct lender as opposed to going to the public markets. But we wanted to do that in the highest quality, lowest risk way possible. We wanted our investors to get the extra yield that you could get for doing illiquid lending, but to try to minimize credit risk as much as possible. So to do that for us, our judgment at the time was to do that was to lend to bigger companies, upper middle market companies, and we really liked private equity-backed companies, and we'll get into that in a why. But to do that well, you need to have a big pool of capital. You couldn't do that with a small pool of capital. You have a big pool of capital. And so we set out to, to get a, a very large pool of capital, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but we wanted to offer companies, bigger companies, backed by private equity firms, large-scale direct lending solutions. Um, and we set out you know, to build that business. Our very first fund, Our Rock Capital Corporation, um, we raised, we basically had $12 billion of capital in our very first fund within a year or so of founding the firm, and we were off to the races. So that's a little bit of context behind the opportunity set and sort of how we started the business. Well, that's going to leave us a lot of things to talk about. So thanks for thanks for setting the table. Um, but I think it might also be helpful for us to understand your role within the Owl Rock structure. So can you talk about what it means to be the, uh, the CIO of the um Alrock Capital Advisors, as well as the CEO of the uh, Alrock BDCs. Yep, I have a, it's a nice it's a nice resume. It's a bit of a mouthful, and it's uh, hard to really tell the differences. So, Alrock Capital Advisor is is the manager of the funds that we create. So, if you're familiar with KKR or Blackstone, they manage funds. Alrock Capital Advisors manages those funds. We hire a team. We form the funds. Um, and we essentially get paid to manage those funds. Um, the decision-making of those funds is, is held by the investment committee, and I serve as co-CIO of the advisor of those funds. So I, that's one hat, hat that I wear, really the, the driver of the decision-making. The types of funds that we have focused on, not exclusively, but most of our capital is in the form of business development companies or BDCs, which, I, again, I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into how they work. Um, BDCs are very interesting they're different than a typical GPLP commingled fund that many might be familiar with. BDCs are actual companies. They're registered investment companies. They're registered with the SEC. And so they're companies. They're not funds. Um, and so I serve as the CEO of those companies. Um, so I, I'm, the, I'm one of the co-CIOs of the, of the funds. You can think of it as like a portfolio manager. And I also serve as the CEO. BDCs have a lot of advantages, I think, for investors. One of them is regardless of whether they're publicly traded or not, BDCs have independent board members. So I serve as the CEO, 
but we have a separate independent board with a chairman and other independent board members. I think it's a really terrific governance feature of BDCs. And I think you missed the most important thing is the permanent capital, right? Versus having to, you know, raise right. a fund a new well, fund. We'll get, we'll, we'll, we will yeah. talk to about that as much yeah. as you would like, because it's certainly one of the more attractive aspects of it. Yeah. And so one thing I hadn't actually thought to ask you about is, you know, there's there's always this question about internally managed versus externally managed and the fees that go between them. And so as you were thinking about creating Alrock with that blank slate, how did you think about like internal versus external management? I know that the, the, the parties are related, but I, I've seen in a number of situations where people, especially investors, don't like that externally managed structure because of the fees that go in between the different arms. How does how did you think about all that? Uh, sure. Well, so let's just define it just to make sure we're all you know speaking the same language. Um, we we are an external manager. So the funds that we manage, we are hired as an external manager by the board of those companies. Um, it's a one-year contract. Every year we um you know re reapply essentially to the board and get rehired for another year. And if we did a poor job managing the money, then the board has the right to essentially hire someone else to run the money. Um, internally managed BDCs, um, the management, the uh, investment advisor are employees of the company and they get paid by the company internally as opposed to this external management contract. Presumably in the same way, the board could replace management just like you would any kind of operating company. Um, as, as I'm sure that we will get into at this point, you know, we've grown quite substantially. You know, we've had a lot of success. We've had a lot of support from our client base and the investors that invest in our funds. And we'll talk about how we have grown. Um, but we think as an external manager, it allows us to manage, you know, multiple funds. Um, if we were just an internal managed BDC, we'd probably have one BDC. Today we have we actually have seven BDCs that we serve as an external manager of. Um you know, I think that, you know, we, um, fees is a topic that comes up a lot in the BDC space. It's a topic of interest from um, the shareholders, the boards, um, the investors. And I think it's an important topic and we should talk about it. Um, but I would say I, w- I would hold our, our returns up there with anyone. We, I would hold the performance of the funds, the credit performance of the funds. And ultimately, that's what puts money in investors' pockets. Um, and so, you know, we have a, you know, I think a, um, a very much on market fee structure for each of our funds, the boards hire us, um, and the, uh, the returns that we deliver on the credit performance, I think is commensurate with, you know, the quality that we bring to the equation. And I have a couple more questions about the structure of your organization before we get into like BDCs in general. So for anyone who may be confused about the number of owls in this equation, how are Blue Owl and Owl Rock related? What? How does? How do those firms uh, interact? Well, I'll tell you a funny story. So we've been at this for six and a half years, and you know we've built a pretty substantial business, as you know, hundred billion of AUM, publicly traded company. It's kind of an interesting story. The most frequent question I ever get is around the name. No matter where, it's the one thing everyone wants to ask about. So the genesis behind Alrock as a name is, you know, we had a blank sheet of paper, uh, my partner, Doug, my partner, Mark Lipschultz and I, and we had to come up with a name. And as you probably suspect, um, names are hard to come by, you know, every Greek God and Greek symbols been taken, you know, every, you know, some of the popular flowers have been taken. And so we stumbled upon, we like the iconic iconography of the owl, the wise owl. 
Um, owls are generally uh, creatures that people tend to think kindly of. Not too can't picture too many uh, mean owls. And so we liked the owl. And then rock, stable, felt like a good combination. Turned out it was free. And so we picked Owl Rock as the name of our firm. Um, and, um, and, you know, it wound up being quite popular uh, with clients and our team. If you go to our offices, you'll see stuffed animal owls, photos of owls. It's a great name. Um, we merged our business a year and change ago uh, with a with a business called Dial. I'm sure we'll, we'll we'll get into that. But when we merged, we formed a, a public company, and we had to come up with the name of that company. And so we picked Blue Owl. There was no magic to that one. Um, I think it was literally like a project name that one of the law firms had used that we we sort of liked. Uh, but Blue Owl is the publicly traded company. Um, Owl Rock still we still use the Owl Rock name for the direct lending business. And then we use the Dial Capital name for the GP Solutions business. Um, so yes, we we have a couple a couple of owls, and uh, it's where it served us quite well. Well, it's definitely good that you didn't merge with a company with owl in its name. That would have been that would have been pretty tough. That but maybe talk a little bit about the merger with Dial, which I believe was a was a division of Newberger Berman. That's right. You know, the, so maybe talk a little bit about the the rationale behind that deal, and then how it's progressed over the last year relative to your internal expectations. Sure. So, Al Rock manages private credit funds. Um, Dial Capital is a division. It was a division of Newberger Berman. A very interesting business where they manage funds that make investments in the general partners of private equity firms. So um, you can think of a KKR or a Blackstone, or you could think of a TPG or um, a Silver Lake or a Vista or a Toma Bravo. Each of those firms is owned by their general partners and Dial manages funds that buy stakes in the private equity managers themselves. And they really invented that space. They're the market leader by, by multiples and it's a very successful business. It also has permanent capital, which we talked about earlier. In addition to buying stakes in private equity firms, Dial also occasionally buys stakes in credit managers. And so Dial had actually bought a stake in, in Alrock um, uh, two and a half years or so ago. Um, and so we they had bought a 20% interest. Their fund had bought a 20% interest in our business, um, which was fantastic because we took that capital and that was one of the ways we could continue to grow. And so for us, it was, it was helped us achieve our strategic objectives. But as, as we had them now as a, as a shareholder, we got to know them extremely well. And we got to like Michael Reese and the team well as partners in our business. But we also saw that in many ways, we were serving the same client base, if you will. We were lending to portfolio companies of private equity firms. They were taking stakes in the GPs of private equity firms. And we both were looking at other solutions to provide to the private equity firms, financing their deals, financing their funds, financing their GPs. And we're not in the private equity business, so we don't compete with them. And so we realized there was a unique opportunity to combine the two businesses and be a solutions provider for particularly the private equity firms. It could be other alternative asset alternative asset managers, but particularly the private equity firms. As you probably have some sense, there's been explosive growth in the private equity community, both in terms of number of managers, amount of funds raised. It's a very attractive um, area for uh, institutional investors to invest in. That We expect there to be more retail interest in the space as well. 
And so we created Blue Owl to be a solutions provider to this fast growing and large part of the asset management business. Um, and, um, and, and that's really been um, uh, terrific. So we, we combined in a somewhat complicated transaction. We're happy to talk about that, but it's sort of old news at this point. Now we're a publicly traded company, trade on the New York Stock Exchange. We're extremely happy with our, our success uh, since that IPO. It's a little more than a year now, um, just so you have some sense. And it's very interesting. We we chose to we use the SPAC as part of the process. And you know, we we can go through all that, had some tactical benefits. But when you uh, use a SPAC, we actually put projections out at the time of the IPO, which a traditional IPO you wouldn't. Um, and so you can see exactly how we did versus uh, what we thought because we said it publicly. And I, you know, I think we're really proud that we've um, we've really hit what we've said, if not exceeded. So just you have some sense, our AUM in, since going public a year and change ago has doubled to 120 billion dollars. Um, all, all, almost all of that is permanent capital. Um, our fee-related earnings, which is an important metric in the industry, is up 50%. Um, so on all the financial metrics, we've done extremely well. Perhaps the most important, the performance of our funds. You know, that's the, that's really what matters at the end of the day. It's been uh, it's extremely, um, extremely happy with the performance of the Dial funds and the Alrock funds. So Blue Owl basically offers a high-growth, predictable, profitable way to invest in the growth of the alternative asset uh, management um, industry, particularly the private equity firms. And we think that's a terrific place to be. Compounders is brought to you in partnership with Tegas. We created Compounders to uncover the lessons and frameworks of the best capital compounders in the world. And if you are a professional investor, VC, or operator, and you appreciate the deep research into the businesses explored on this podcast, check out tegas.co slash compounders. With Tegas, you can learn about any company directly from former execs, current customers, and industry experts, all of which are in position to offer unique insights into company's growth, its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. The platform offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies such as Compounders Guests, Viasat, Element Solutions, and Avid Technology. All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access to nearly 25,000 expert call transcripts. And the best part, the Tegas collection grows larger with each investor and company that joins. Still want to do your own expert calls? Tegas is the right solution. Experts that are just as good or better than what you'd find on other networks, but starting at just $300 per call, not the $1,000 or more others charge. If you're ready to go deeper on the next compounding business, Head to tegas.co slash compounders for a free trial. I can personally say that having access to the Tegas platform and Rolodex of experts has fundamentally changed the quality of due diligence Coast Street does on both new and existing ideas. Well, thank you for that. I think that was a really good overview of <laughs> the owls and how this all came together and then and now with how it's, it's working with Dial. But maybe we can, you know, jump into the BDC conversation now. You're our first BDC of a BDC we've ever had. And a lot of listeners may not be familiar with or focus on BDCs. So would you discuss the structure of a typical BDC, what they usually invest in, and you know why they might be an attractive asset class on their own, kind of like how REITs are now viewed after you know, kind of not being more of a niche product for many, many years, and now it's, they've become very mainstream. Sure. 
you know, I, I'm glad that you raised REITs because I find for those that are not familiar with BDCs, I often start with REITs because so many are familiar with REITs. And, you know, if you're familiar with REITs, you know, REITs are, they're pretty simple. They invest in real estate, different types of real estate. Um, the investors, it gives investors, particularly um, retail investors, a way to get access to real estate as an investment strategy and earn a yield. And they're, you know, essentially pass-through vehicles. There's no tax at the corporate level. They pay all their income out to their shareholders. BDCs are the same. It's the same type of its structure, but instead of investing in real estate, BDCs typically just make loans to private companies. The regulations regarding BDCs were designed to promote lending to U.S. Uh, companies, it's private companies. They're required. We are required um, to invest in 70% of our assets in, in U.S. private companies. Um, different BDCs have different ways of approaching that. Um, we at Alrock have focused on upper middle market private equity-backed companies, different BDCs will approach that um, differently. But in the simplest terms, we have a fund. Again, we have seven BDCs, but they're all basically a very similar strategy. We raise a pool of capital. We make loans, typically first lien, senior secured, floating rate term loans. Today, those loans were earning about 9 or 10%. We pool all those income streams, put a modest amount of leverage, um, and after expenses, we're able to pay out an eight and a half, nine and a half percent um, dividend, which is you know quite attractive if you think about it. REITs today, dividend stream is like half that. So we're making a portfolio of floating rate loans, take the income, pay it out to shareholders. We have to we're required we are required to pay out ninety percent of our income uh, to shareholders, and so the dividend is an extremely important asset aspect of BDCs. For Alrock specifically, I mentioned this, but just want to repeat it. We are primarily a first lien term loan lender. So we're at the top of the capital structure, the first creditor in line. Our average loan to value is about 45%, um, which we think is very reasonable. We lend to upper middle market companies, typically 150 million of cash flow. So these are big companies. We're not lending to you know, the convenience store on the corner. We're lending to companies that are really important to the US economy, stable sectors, um, typically private equity backed, um, and where we're trying to really minimize loss rates. So we take all those dividend, all those uh, uh, interest payments we're getting, package them up, really have try to have as, as, as close to zero losses as possible and pay all that income out to our, our shareholders. Now, the one last thing I'll emphasize, because I think it's especially important for obvious reasons right now, is almost all of our assets are floating rate. And so in this environment, we're actually a beneficiary of higher rates. Those higher rates essentially will drop to our bottom line. Um, our loans are, are based on LIBOR and LIBOR's replacement SOFR. Those rates have gone up pretty substantially in the last uh, four or five months, given what the Fed's doing. And you know we like that. That's that's extra income for us and our shareholders. And we'll get into the maybe the credit implications of of all of that that you discussed, and maybe even rising yields. But um, maybe maybe talk a little bit. And you mentioned in your you know when, when I asked you about BDCs in general, you mentioned that the banks had kind of abandoned this space. Can you talk about why that has been the case, and maybe a little bit about you know. What it, does that opportunity still exist, or has it mo been a lot? Most of that's been played out in terms of, you know, the banks had share in the in the in the lending to private equity backed companies, and now that's gone to zero. Like maybe talk a little bit about the opportunity going forward. Sure. 
So I have a, I have a, you know, quite a perspective on this. As I mentioned when we started, you know, I I spent most of my career working at at big banks, um, running the leverage finance business at Goldman, and before that at Credit Suisse, um, and 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 so I've been in the leverage finance space for a long time, and I think this is a question I get asked a lot um, because I think there's a perception that well, banks make loans to companies. That's where companies should get their loans, and you know, if you went back. 40, 50 years ago, that was the case. Um, it's really not the case anymore for non-investment grade loans. And and we and let's 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 acknowledge when we make loans, we're lending to non-investment grade companies. There's an element of risk to them, and, and we shouldn't um, minimize that. That's a very important part of 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 our value add is assessing that risk. But they're non-investment grade loans, and the banks really are not in the business of holding loans to non-investment grade companies. Now they'll arrange the financing. So if you're a private equity firm, the banks have a big business where you go to them and they in uh, the private equity firms and the banks will arrange the financing. But they basically will sell that financing to investors. They arrange it similar to how they arrange IPOs. They don't want to hold any of the term loans. The largest uh, investor base for leveraged loans, which is what the term is for non-investment grade loan, are CLOs collateralized loan obligations. CLO managers, by far the largest buyer of loans. The banks basically intermediate leveraged loans. They arrange them and sell them on the CLOs. Since they're not going to hold the paper until you complete your transaction, you don't know what the final terms are. The final terms are subject to market conditions. The banks will not commit with it for an exact rate. They add what's called flex. Flex to the rate, flex to the terms, flex to the structure. It's also a very public process you need ratings, you need to have conference calls, you need a report. And even once you place the loan, that loan will trade just like a stock. And so if your company has any hard times, you could find yourself where your creditors are, are now distressed hedge funds that are buying up your loan. So that process has existed the way it has for 30 years, and it's got a lot of disadvantages to it. So direct lending, we basically offer, it's not, not an intermediated process. We will make the loans directly to the companies. We hold it. It's private. Our terms are certain. Um, and so it's a, we think a better option and private equity firms are liking it. Um, so I don't, I don't think that the world is ever going to go back where the banks are going to want to hold those loans. Frankly, the banks are heavily, heavily regulated. The regulators don't want the banks to hold those loans. Um, and if anything, the trend continues to accelerate. Now, interestingly, you're, you're, I think you're asking a bit of like, has this played itself out at this point? It really hasn't. It used to be when we started the business and we were, you know, we were innovative. I talked about size being a very important aspect of, of what we offered. Um, when we started the business, the typical deal size might be 100, 200, maybe $300 million. $500 million was a very large deal. A year or so after we started, you saw the first billion-dollar direct lending deal, which seemed at the time extraordinary. Billion-dollar, that should be something that would go to the public markets. Why, why, why would that go to the private markets? Well, as we have come along, and there have been some others that have raised much bigger pools of capital, we can now offer much bigger solutions. And so roll the clock forward today, just in the second quarter of this year, it just completed Alrock looked at 20 deals that were a billion dollars or more, 20 of them in one quarter. Why is that the case? 
because we now manage $60 billion of capital. So a billion dollar deal is, is, is not a particularly consequential deal in that context for us. You couldn't do those deals five or six years ago. So that trend of offering bigger solutions continues to play out. We have many private equity firms who have just done their first direct lending deal in the last couple of years. They really like the process and we think they're going to use it more and more frequently and we'll continue to take share from the syndicated markets. And just a quick question on, you know, I guess maybe that's risk management position sizing. Would you would you take on the whole billion in, in, a, in a deal like that or would you syndicate a little bit out and share with, you know, another yeah. platform of some kind? Yeah, good question. Um we would typically, a billion would be a very large deal for us. So we would typically prefer, depending upon the deal, but directionally doing 500 million of that deal. What's nice about it is, you know, we're not the only one who's grown and that can offer large solutions. So we don't have to go on risk to the private equity firm and underwrite a billion and then have to go find a home. Essentially, you know, the working with the private equity firms, they'll put together, we and maybe two other lenders, and we'll cobble the whole deal together. We also have um, LPs of our funds that like co-investments. That's another way we can um, form that interest. Um, but essentially, with a with a group of two to four lenders, you can easily pull together a billion dollars. Great, great. And for someone who's kind of new to BDCs and maybe would be um, evaluating one for a potential investment, what are the important metrics or characteristics you think people should be focused on uh, in, in terms of th- considering an investment? Um, sure. You know, I look, I appreciate, you know, the opportunity to, to share some of this because I think it's a space that um, should be very interesting, particularly for, you know, folks that are comfortable making their own investment decisions. You know, the yield that in the BDC space is extraordinary. You know, our fund is yielding nine, nine, you know, nine plus percent right now. It's, you know, I think it's a very attractive yield. Um, Obviously, the qual- we talked about the manager. You know, the manager of the fund is an important um, uh, characteristic, the quality of the manager, size of their team, their track record, their approach to investing. Um, what's the quality of the assets? What types of companies do they lend to? Bigger companies, smaller companies, private equity backed um, or not? Um, what's their loss rates? You know, we all publish. I, didn't, I kind of said this earlier, but just repeat it. BDCs are registered with the SEC. Every BDC has to file 10Ks and 10Qs. Even if it's not publicly traded, they're still registered with the SEC. And so you can get data on loss rates, non-accrual rates, um, valuation policy, um, where, where our loans are marked. Um, and so all of that, all of that information um, should be looked at, I think, if you're evaluating BDCs. There's a, a you know pretty decent sized group of, of, of equity research analysts that follow the space and they, you know, you can look at their research and they can also find, you know, show you metrics to compare. Our, our ROE, you know, is, a, is, a, is an important characteristic, the dividend yield, the dividend rate. Um, but it's very important to um, you know, Matt, make sure you're investing in a BDC where the risk reward seems appropriate. There are BDCs out there that have higher dividend yields than our fund um, because, you know, in our opinion, they're invested in risk, riskier assets. And so um, you want to be careful. Um, the other thing is, is you know, where BDC trades, I think it's an important um, statistic that you should look at. Our fund trades about 95% of NAV. So you're buying a portfolio of loans that we value at par and you're being able to buy that portfolio, you know, 95 cents on the dollar. Um, so that's another aspect I would, I would evaluate for the BDC. And could you describe why some BDCs would be public and not others? What are the advantages or disadvantages of being private versus public? Sure. 
So, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, in all cases, we file with the SEC. And so, you know, many private companies, their decision about whether to go public or not can hinge on, do I want to have my information out there? Every BDC is is required to file with the SEC. Um, one of the ways that we have tried to be innovative at Al Rock is by offering funds to meet the investors where they live. We serve institutional investors, we serve retail investors, and particularly in retail, maybe it's obvious, but retail investors invest their money in many different ways. Many, many of your uh, listeners and viewers, they may invest it on their own. They may have their own brokerage account and make their own trading decisions. Or they may have their account at a firm like a Merrill Lynch or a Morgan Stanley. Or they may work with, there, there are thousands of independent wealth management firms around the country, RIAs, um, that, that um, they may have their money with. And so we've been innovative by offering funds that are suited to the distribution channel where our clients manage their money. Um, and so uh, we, back to the public versus private, it's, it's meeting investors where they live. Some investors don't really care about having the liquidity. They might manage their money. They might have their money invested with a broker. They want the dividend yield. They don't value the liquidity. They value it being on the platform that they use to manage their money. Uh, for them, one of our private funds might be a good solution. Some investors place a very high priority on the liquidity and being able to buy and sell the stock. They want to get out of their position for them and our publicly traded BDC ORCC uh, would be a good solution. We are very different in, in, than other managers in this regard. When we started in the space, I would say probably there was only a couple of examples where there were managers that had more than one BDC. We, you know, today, you know, we have by far the largest number of BDCs at seven. There are a few other managers that have two or three. Um, and we, you know, I view it as a way to take um, our product and make it make it available to the different investors. What's the other thing we did that I think is very important, I just want to underscore it is we, the investors in our funds, no matter what fund you invest in, you're getting access to the same exact deal flow. Every deal we do goes through one investment funnel, which means our smallest retail investor in ORCC or any one of our funds gets the same exact deal flow at the same exact pricing as our largest institutional investors, the largest pension plans in the country. That, that is not always the case at every manager. I think it's something that we very deliberately set up um, and that's been very successful for us. And let's just take our ORCC as an example. Um, so only 10% of your capital can be retained, right? Because 90% has to get paid out, right? And so the way to make new loans is that loans get repaid or and, and then you can recycle that. But what about in terms of like, I don't know, a big deal comes in and you need more capital than what you have. I mean, should we, I, I mean, REITs often to whatever, they're gonna, they're gonna buy a bunch of new properties, often raise capital via, you know, an equity raise and then continue to pay a dividend, which is always kind of interesting, interesting kind of, uh, kind of mixing, you know, like money, kind of money going out one hand and out the other. But do, is that, is that typical in BDCs where you also see equity capital raises? It's very different. You know, REITs and BDCs are very different in this regard. And BDCs, as, you, as you're alluding to, in REITs, there can be much more frequent issuance. There can be much more, you know, faster growth opportunities. One constraint, BDCs can issue shares below NAV. 
So, so today our RCC is trading below NAV. Like we we couldn't issue shares if we wanted to, which which we don't, but but we couldn't if we wanted to. Um, so you don't see that phenomenon. There will be um occasional equity issuance from from certain BDCs. We have chosen to grow by uh by by launching new funds rather than by trying to grow RCC um by itself or any of our funds by themselves. So to your point. Because we manage all funds under one umbrella, I mentioned a minute ago with one investment funnel. When that large deal comes along, we will we will commit to it and then put in a piece in each of our funds. So that's the way we've been able to do bigger and bigger deals is just by by launching uh, bigger funds. I actually think that that's positive for shareholders because oftentimes shareholders don't like the overhang of potential future equity issuance that can push the stock down. So it hasn't been a, a concern of ours, um, but it, it, it's very different than uh, than the uh, than the read space in that regard. And a quick question on the the nav: How you know you guys have been at it for a while? How big a you know spread have have you seen in terms of the nav? Has it has it been you know pretty consistent under uh, ninety five, or has it you know been at one hundred five and 80, 87? Like where where is that trended over time? Sure. So. Um, we went public in the summer of of 2019 um and i and if you went back we actually traded quite well and we traded nicely above nav pretty uh consistently after our ipo um which was which we were very happy with and i'll tell you at the time there was some skepticism about about that because um not every bdc ipo had been successful um we did a number of deliberate things to try to make sure we did trade well um, which we can go into, but we're very pleased and we thought it was commensurate with the quality of the portfolio that we had built. Um, when COVID hit, all the BDCs traded, you know, traded down, you know, quite, quite, uh, quite considerably. Um, and, and we did as well. Um, I forget where it trough, but, but they traded, you know, quite well below, below NAV, certainly in the eighties, um, may, may even touch below that. Um, I would say since then, um, we've bounced around in the nineties and occasionally gotten as close to nav. Um, you know, I think that, that over time, if you, if you look at the equity research on our BDCs, you'll find most of the analysts expect us to eventually trade back above nav. That's where their price targets are. Um, you know, and I, I would hope for that over time, but I would say, um, frustratingly, we've oftentimes found ourselves trading in the nineties. I think part of that is our is we're still relatively newer than some of the other players, and you know I think as we continue to have great credit performance, I would expect and hope that that um, that that would um, you know go away. But that that has been the case. And we've danced around the topic of position sizing a little bit, but I want to put a finer point on that. Sure. So how do you go about determining how much you're going to provide to a specific borrower? And you know what are there any guidelines in the maximum position within the portfolios? Uh, sure. So, sort of two different two different um, questions embedded in that. So, so and they're really separate process. Our decision of how much to lend to a borrower is really driven by our our credit judgment, our investment process, our due diligence, how much debt is appropriate for that borrower. Um, you know, typically uh, the private equity firm we're working with is going to have what they would like. But we're going to make that judgment. We do a lot of work around that judgment, which I'm happy to get into. But sizing the loan is, is first and foremost, is this an appropriate amount of debt um, where the company can comfortably service it and, and, and we're going to get our money back? I mean, that 
we'll do nothing that will sacrifice that. Now, when it comes to, well, how much are we willing to put in our funds that you're getting the portfolio construction, which is the other part of your question? Um, this might be a simple, simple observation, but we're a lender. And as a lender, eventually, we hope to get our money back at par. And so there's, there's really no upside as a lender, right? We are not going to Nobody repays us, you know. We so we have call protection, so I'm being a little simplistic. If they repay us early, we'll get some modest premium. But essentially, the goal is to get back your money, your money at par, and it's all downside. And as to a certain extent, as a credit manager, our job is to minimize that downside. That's that's what's going to generate the best returns for us. And so, diversification is critical to minimizing the downside. So typically. Um, we target 1% position sizes, give or take. Um, if we the names we really like might be closer to 2%. So our top 10 positions on our mature funds are about 20%, two times 10. Um, and then we have a we'll have a lot of ones, and then we've got you know plenty of positions that are below 1%. You know, probably our single biggest line item for the name we like the most will be something like 3%. Now, if you looked at our our fund, you'll see one or two items that are more than 3%, but those are not individual credits. They're funds that we've invested in that have like, that are, their underlying assets are very diversified. So you're not taking on single borrower risk. So basically, you know, we want to have as diversified a pool of, a pool of investments as possible. I think that's critical. And I would, you know, ideally like to have one or 1% or, or less average position sizes. I think that's a good point to start talking about the credit side and, and and minimizing losses, as you've highlighted a number of times. Clearly, the stock market has begun to worry about impending economic deterioration. Your companies have some leverage on them, and, and that could be magnified or magnify the impact of a tough growth environment. So since you're lending to private equity companies, some of them are 5x, 6x, or even 7x levered. How do you position the portfolio in addition to the diversification you mentioned to uh, weather an economic downturn? Look, this is um, this is core to what we do. And I'll say it's more topical now to ask it because, as you said, you know, we're worried about the economy. But this is how we've approached it 2016 when we started, 17, 18, 19. You know, as a lender, you're really just paid to focus on the downside. And that's what we do. So our strategy today is exactly what we've been doing since inception. I think it served us well. We try to lend to companies that are recession resistant. So our biggest sectors, software, insurance brokerage, healthcare, food and beverage. You will find very few classic cyclicals in our portfolios since inception. Auto parts and mining and drilling and metals, home building. There are times that those can be real growth areas. We 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 almost never prefer cyclical companies. I talked about bigger companies. This is an important, not well appreciated aspect. I'm just repeating myself. Apologies. Our average borrower is 150 million of cash flow. These are consequential companies that are typically one of the top two or three players in their space. Customers that need their products. In good times and bad, they're not going away. Um, and the, the other piece I want to harp on is the loan to value. On average, less than 50% loan to value. 
So there's a very motivated owner beneath us, typically a private equity firm, has more capital in the deal than we do. And they're not getting a dollar back on their capital unless we get all of our money back. Um, and so that's some of some of the playbook. Upper middle market, recession-resistant companies that, um, sure, in a, in, a, in a recession, they might not grow as fast, or they, maybe they'll even be flat. Maybe they'll have a top line that's off a couple of percentage points. It's okay as a lender. For an equity holder, maybe that's not okay. But as a lender, we can have companies, our companies have liquidity. They can um, you know, withstand a couple of years of softer results and, and uh, still have a good loan. And you mentioned the low loan-to-value ratio across the portfolio. I want to focus on the denominator of that um, equation. So, I mean, you should have a pretty nice margin of safety um, if you're less than 50% loan to value on the first lien debt. But I guess one concern I would have is that key companies um, who academic research suggests thrives when they're paying kind of seven to eight X EBITDA multiples for acquisitions have increasingly had to pay more like 10 or 11 times to win deals. So how do you build conservatism in your valuation process so that you don't get hurt if, you know, basically just the value, the, the value was inflated by kind of the deal multiples that were prevailing in the market? Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you from my standpoint, I think that your multiples are, they're even higher than you're suggesting. Uh, it is routine now where private equity firms are paying 15, 18 times cash flow. Um, in the software space, it's even more than that. Um so you're right. What we found is interesting is as purchase prices have gone up, leverage has not gone up. And so what's happening is deals are more and more equitized. That 45% that we're talking about, when we started, that number was north of 50%, not a lot more than 50%, but it was much more typically 50-55% as they paid more. We, we have not given them more leverage. Um I think you're asking a great question. We shouldn't just be a slave to the fact that someone's willing to write a big check. Um, our analysis starts with fundamental credit analysis. We go through um, the, uh, the history, the prospects of the company, and we're making a judgment where we are underwriting a model, uh, a set of projections on what the company will do in various um, scenarios. And in, in all of those scenarios, are we going to get repaid? Every investment we make there's a sponsor case, but then we run our base case. We run our downside case. We also run a liquidation case. Every memo we have, there's an actual liquidation case. Assume something really bad happens. Depends on the company what that really bad thing is. Three years out, do we think we're going to get our money back? Um, and so, you know, even if the LTV is very low, and if there are uh, scenarios where we think our our, our recovery or principal is 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 going to be at risk, you know, that's not a loan that we're going to make. What's interesting in the in the direct lending space, where do you see that happen? You see it happen with companies that have what I'll call concentration risks. So concentration could be a single product, a single geography, a single plant, a single technology, um, a single end market, a, a single regulatory. If there's one thing that that company is dependent on, even though someone might pay a huge price for it, but if that one thing goes wrong, we could be at risk. You know, those are businesses that we tend not to be enthusiastic about. And the other way to look at a recessionary environment is that it could be an opportunity for a company to put capital to work. So how would you position ORCC and the other BECs to go on the offensive if the returns start to look even more attractive than they are now? Yeah. So, you know, just to put a finer point on it, um, 
I talked earlier about we're a beneficiary of higher rates. Um, we're also benefiting right now from higher spreads. So two things are happening at the same time that we're quite excited about. Our base rates are up 200 basis points and, um, and the spreads have widened out because of all the dislocation you're seeing in the public markets. We're able to charge a higher spread. So directionally, we're earning about 300 basis points or 3% more for the same loan now than we would have made six months ago. Um, so that's great for our, our investors. Um, this is a tricky one. I, I, I wish I could tell you that, oh, we can just you know pull jujitsu move A and take advantage in, in a more meaningful way. Um, but we're a private lender. And, and part of that is we make loans. They typically mature in five to seven years. They're not liquid. So it's not like, like running a big publicly traded portfolio that I can you know, decide to sell over here and buy over here. Um, so the the main way we benefit from that is is repayments. And, you know, the loans typically will repay in three years, four years. And so we expect to get 25, 33% of the portfolio back in any year. And as that money comes back, we can redeploy it at better terms. Um, so it's not, it's not too, you can't easily reposition the portfolio. But we also benefit from the existing loans we have in the ground as rates go up. You know, so you don't have to reposition. You don't have to sell the loan or or get the loan repaid to benefit from the higher rates, the higher spreads. You've got to make uh, you've got to make new loans. And are you concerned? And and, and a corollary to that, or, or should investors be concerned that rising yields negatively impact your borrower's ability ability to pay their interest? I mean, isn't that a isn't that a p- potential scenario too, where 200, 300 basis points higher rates? You know, companies that are highly levered, you know, the cash flow might go down really quickly. How how have you thought about positioning yourself for, to mitigate that risk? Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, rates were at zero, and most of our loans, almost all of our loans, had a floor of one percent. So they're paying the floor even when rates were below the floor. But higher rates are more debt service, and even though we benefit from getting that debt service directly, um, they impact credit quality. Um, we think we have rates were so low, obviously, as part of our underwriting process, you know, we, we had to build in some sensitivity analysis on rates directionally. One way you might think about it is the interest coverage ratio at our funds, each fund's slightly different, but directionally it's in the high twos, close to three, three times EBITDA interest coverage. Um, if rates were to go up 300 basis points from here, that number would be closer to two instead of the high twos. So still ample cushion. It's something we worry about. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we're we're lenders. We worry. That's 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 what you do. Um, we haven't talked about it, but I think this might be a good place to mention it. Most of our loans have covenants, maintenance covenants. All of our loans have covenant packages, and so this isn't just some idle speculation about how the companies are doing. We get very detailed reporting packages, um, sometimes monthly, always at least quarterly. And we have covenants that 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 um, if there's a deterioration in performance or co- interest coverage and the like, um, the companies have to come talk to us. So we get really seated at the table early on. Um, and so if there was a company that was struggling with their interest, you know, they would have to come talk to us, and we would sit down with the owners of the company and, and figure out a solution. But typically, that solution is going to be that owner. We want that owner to put more money in if it comes to that. So we've got we've got tools to make sure our loans are protected. You know, we haven't talked about it, but our, our credit performance has been impeccable really since inception. Average loss rates across the funds about 15 basis points, which is extraordinarily low. 
Um, so I think that speaks to the quality of our underwriting underwriting process. And often in kind of bad economic times, the banks will just take their non-accruals, their non-performers and sell them off right at a loss and, and just get, you know, kind of clean up the balance sheet. Um, my guess is BDCs don't do that, but is there any secondary market at all for these loans or really like you got it, you, you got to see it through? So big managers like ourselves, we've invested in a big investment team and part of that team is a workout team. You know, we we when we make a loan, we are expecting that if there is a problem, that we will have to work that problem out ourselves. We've had literally, we've only had um, really two, only two situations in our entire history where that's had to happen. Two um, out of hundreds, um, but but is part of the business model for being what for what we do. Um, so the answer to your question is there's no there's no observable market. We could take one of our troubled loans and likely find um, a distressed fund that would be interested in buying that loan. The problem is there's kind of a mismatch. At that point, company's not doing well. We know everything there is to know about that company. The distressed fund knows nothing about that company. The likelihood that they're going to give us a price that we think is a fair price is, is pretty low. And so we're, we, are, we find it's much better off we have the ability, we have the team, we have the, the time horizon to work through the problems and, and we would rather, uh, we'd rather do it ourselves. Um, I'll tell you, and I won't get specific, but one of those two situations I'm referring to where we had to take over the company, you know, it's been about a year and change now, you know, I, the direct company's now headed in a much better direction. It was impacted by COVID, you know, and I think that we are going to have a really, you know, nice recovery one day, and it'll be a good case study for why it makes more sense for us to hold it and work it out versus sell it. And one, um, you, you said that you're a lender, so there's never any upside, really. But I, I was just looking through the portfolio, and I see in some cases you have equity stakes in the companies you're lending to. How do those come about, and and how do you monetize those over time? Sure. So because we do work with so many private equity firms and we have really warm relationships with those private equity firms. Um, sometimes they'll ask us or sometimes we will ask them if we can co-invest in the equity of the companies that we lend to alongside their funds. Um, and so we've built a, you know, a, these are really modest bite sizes. If we're making a $200 million loan, we might buy 20 million of equity. So it's, it's a tiny piece of, of the fund, but it's, Particularly for the you know for the companies where we think the equity story is attractive, you know we like the loan. We're going to get a nice return on the loan, but the hope is over time that this portfolio and you know P fund P investments generally is a high return. It's a high return strategy by having a small diversified portfolio of equity investments. It will add additional return to our funds. There's a chance to create some NAV growth. Um, in terms of monetizing. Um, typically, we're going to follow the same path as the private equity firm. So when they and we we negotiate up front, when they monetize, they sell or they IPO. You know, we'll get some rights to participate in that and monetize. You know, in a similar fashion. So I think we've done a nice job of you know digging around in the weeds to to understand what's going on within the portfolio. I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about culture and capital allocation because we haven't talked about those yet. So I, I've noticed that that BRCC has actually bought back some stock recently. I'm interested in why that's a good use of your capital versus, you know, making new loans in an attractive environment, for example. Uh, sure. So, look, the reality is we 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 did buy some stock, but it was a fairly de minimis amount in the context of our market cap. 
in terms of the decision making, um, we talked earlier, you know, there have been times that, you know, we, we have traded below NAV and in times, you know, I'd say meaningfully below NAV. Um, and so if our stock is trading at 90 cents on the dollar, you know, the ROE on that investment in times can exceed this, the returns that we can get from making an incremental loan. And so, you know, we have a program that's been approved by the board. Um, and so we, we, uh, we will occasionally take advantage of that. You know, we, it's not an easy decision because we really value the size and scale of what we've created. And we've talked about that. And so you're trading off maybe a nice, you know, investment return in the short term, but you know, that capital, essentially you're, you're losing the ability to use that capital down the line. So it's a small amount in the overall scheme of things. I think, I think that um, even those small amounts, shareholders like to see it when we trade down. They want to see um, the management team and the board, you know, feel confident in the value. And so, I think it's you know it, it, there's a symbolic benefit from doing it beyond just the returns. The returns are are attractive, but I think the symbolism I think is also uh, appreciated. And aside from learning that there are owls everywhere in your office, we haven't really talked about culture yet. I'm curious what kind of values you try to embed within the investment team and um, within Owl Rock as a whole. Sure. So Doug, Mark, and I came from you know three of the highest quality firms, not only financial firms, but but companies in America, Goldman Sachs and Blackstone and KKR. Um, and so we, you know, we we when we started our business, um, we wanted to try to create as high quality a firm as we could. Um, and culture is something that I think is extremely important to us. You start your own business, you're hiring people, they're making a bet on on you and 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 what type of company you're going to build and what uh what type of um career that that, that they can have. Um, and so culture is something that we have focused on, you know, from the beginning, I would say some of the themes that you'll hear, I think we have a very, very collegial culture. Um, we treat each other with mutual respect, our investment committee. I haven't worked at other firms, investment committees, but, but we have folks on our team that have, you know, there's no yelling at our investment committee. Everybody's very respectful. We really try to seek participation from everyone on the team and anyone that has any relevant experience. I think particularly some of the junior folks, you know, we we try to encourage them to have a voice, um, which I think can be a, a, an intimidating environment for for folks that have, have worked on the teams. We try to bring that out. I think making sure that, you know, I talked about that we cover private equity firms. Um, we have folks on our team responsible for that coverage effort. Obviously, they're going to have a voice, but we really want to make sure the team, the credit teams that are doing the work on the underwriting. Um, have a chance to 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 speak and and really share some of their worries and make sure that those worries get a fair fair uh, hearing. Um, the other thing I would say culturally, we really try not to have a star culture. Um, all of our investment professionals get carry in the funds. We want everyone to feel they benefit from the success of the fund, not from their individual deals. We don't reward production. We don't reward one person's deal. You benefit from the overall success uh, of, of our funds. Um, we also reward the success of the company. When we went public, um, we uh, shared in that success and we allocated stock to every single employee at the entire company, down to the receptionist. Um, and so, you know, I think that as we've had success and we've had wonderful success, we've tried to share that with everyone there. The last thing I would say is, um, you know, we really try to have a family culture. Um, we, we like to compete. And so every year we have the uh, Blue Owl Olympics 
Uh, we divide the whole company into uh, into teams. We hire an event planner to ma- to to organize competitions that are as serious as as dodgeball and and tug of war, and as fun as uh, 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 spaghetti uh, spaghetti and marshmallow building. Uh, but it pr- builds great camaraderie uh, and competition and prizes, and everybody wants to win that trophy. My partner Doug is naturally competitive and desperately wants to win it every year. Uh, we just had our annual family day um, just a couple of weeks ago in Connecticut. Um, we invited the whole company and everybody's um, uh, families. We had 650 people uh, showing up at a family day um, in the middle of summer. So, you know, those are some of the cultural aspects. It's extremely important to us. I think, you know, the way you can see that reflected is we've had really terrific retention, you know, since, you know, and all the time that we've had. And I think that um, that's great for us. It's great for our clients. They like to see that that high level of retention. And as I was thinking about BDCs in general, um, I mean, this podcast is called Compounders, which suggests that there's a business that's getting more valuable every time over time. And and I guess you know, in financial oriented companies, like I don't know what what does Berkshire measure themselves on is book value per share growth. But you have a structure that doesn't really allow for that. So. I don't know. I don't know. This is a kind of an up in the air question. I'd love to hear how you answer it. But it's like, what would compounding look like for a public BDC such as BRCC? Is it really just a yield vehicle or is there a way to grow book value per share and the stock price over time in addition to that yield? Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it's or, or somehow you slipped into BRCC, ORCC. <laughs> yeah. um, so, okay, it's I think you're on to it in that because we're required to pay out the 90% of income that that limits how much nav growth you can you can create just by definition but you can um a few years ago within ORCC we started an asset based lending business called Wingspire it's one of our largest investments that was a de novo um uh asset based lending business that we started and it's it's owned entirely uh, well, it's owned by the ma- portion by the management team, but but most of it's owned by ORCC. And so now that that we've created an operating business, it's worth more than uh, the capital we put into it. And so there's a chance to create NAV growth over time. We talked about the other equity investments over time. Um, if you earn uh, greater than your dividend, um, you can create some NAV growth. But I'll acknowledge, unless you're doing a lot of M and A, and some BDCs have grown through M and A. It's hard. It's hard to generate some nav growth. I think we'll create some over time. We'd like to. Um, the way I would answer the question for com- compounding is modest, hopeful, modest nav growth. I think we can hopefully grow our dividend over time, particularly as rates go up. And the other thing is where we trade. You know, we're trading at ninety-five cents on the dollar. I talked earlier about how, you know, I'd like to think at some point we're, we'll trade at a premium to nav. And so if you have NAV growth, growing dividend, and your premium that you trade at grows over time, you know, that 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 should create a, a total return opportunity, um, if you will, that's you know quite compelling or whatever time horizon you want to think. You know, if we were to simply get to 1.1 times NAV, um, which many of our, you know, some of our high quality peers are trading at, it's another 15% return on top of a nine percent dividend. I mean, you're talking, you know, assume that happens over two or three years, that's easily a mid-teens. Our rate of return. And I want to come back to it. You're investing in a portfolio of what we think of as relatively safer assets, first lien term loans, right? And so um, I guess that's how I would think about compounding in the context of, of the constraints of paying out 90% of your income. 
in one thing that could, I guess, hinder that compounding or, and, or even the yield is, you know, the use of too much leverage at the organizational structure, at the corporate structure. So how have you thought about that? I mean, and I guess like from someone who's like pretty leverage averse myself, like why does it make sense to, you know, have some leverage, um, you know, at the corporate leverage in addition to, you know, lending to quite levered companies? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I, um, I think it's a fair concern, a fair question. And the answer is, um, the leverage is so low and the quality of the assets we think is so high that for a very little amount of leverage, the return, the in- increase to the returns are, are, are meaningful. Um, let me give you a, a basis for comparison. I talked about how we're lending to bigger and bigger companies. Many of our companies could go in the public markets just as well. If they went in the public markets, those loans would get bought by CLOs. CLOs are about 10 times levered. For every dollar of equity, there's 10 turns of leverage. BDCs typically are one times leverage, so dramatically less. Now, CLOs, that first five turns of leverage is rated triple A by the rating agencies. The loss, no, the loss rates for triple A liabilities is like practically zero in the history of the leverage loan market. And that's five times the amount of leverage. So basically, and you know, we we BDCs um, finance themselves in a number of ways. One way is in the investment grade bond market. Our funds are investment grade rated. No BDC bond of any size or consequences has ever lost dollar principal. So the answer is BDCs have a regulatory cap that can't be more than two times levered. Most BDCs operate at one. And for a relatively modest amount of leverage, you can pick up several hundred basis points of return. And that return is important because without that, I mentioned earlier, we're earning nine or nine or ten percent. But when you factor in the fees and expenses, you would only be earning something like a six or so without that leverage. The leverage gets allows you to pay a dividend that's more like 9%. So it's it's a pretty meaningful pickup for what I would say is not much extra risk. Well, Craig, we've covered a lot and jumped jumped around a lot and, and um, I think it's been a quite educational conversation. Um, so I'm going to close with the question that I ask all of our guests, and maybe let's let's put this in, in the ORCC bucket specifically. What would you say is the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of ORCC? So um, I I've kind of touched on this as, as we've been talking, but I'll sort of sort of pull it together. Um, ORCC was our first fund. Its credit performance has been impeccable. You know, 15 basis points of loss. Very it paid dividends very consistently. Didn't cut its dividend during COVID when when other managers did. Hasn't sold shares of stock, which can push the price down. Um, I think by all measures, high quality portfolio, first lien loans, good loan to value, good sponsors, everything you could want. We've done everything we've said we would do six and a half years ago. Um, but yeah, we traded this discount to NAV, and many of our peers trade a premium to NAV. Um, and there's not really a good explanation for that, you know, but I think that the one I hear most often is that we're, we're newer, you know, and I guess I would say, um, you know, if we, if this had been three years ago, we'd only been around three years, I'd say, okay, we're newer after four years, after five years, after six years, after seven years, you know, so I think that 
there are oftentimes investors that are a little too quick to say, well, it's newer without really jumping in and appreciating the quality of what we've built and the return opportunity. Again, if you compare buying our stock at 95 cents on the dollar versus a peer that's trading at 1.1, you're giving up 15% return, <laughs> uh, you know, for that, you know, for that, 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 that greater history. And I would say, um, obviously, you know, I'm biased, but I think I would argue our quality is as good as, as good as, if not better than many of those peers. And so I would say yeah, something we're working hard on. That's why we're having conversations like this um, to get the word out and have really people pay attention to the fundamentals of what we built and the return and the return profile um, to that. You know, my hope is we'll have this conversation again a year or two years from now. And you'll say, hey, that actually was a really good time to buy because now you're trading at a premium um, um, like your peers are. Well, if we are indeed going to go through some kind of economic turmoil more than we're seeing right now, the portfolio will get tested. So hopefully, um, you know, the results will be commensurate with the past and and you will get that premium. Uh, so, Craig, this has been incredible. Thanks so much for being on Compounders. We really appreciate all of your insights. All right, Ben. It's great to see you. Thank you. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at costreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.